This is the Monday, October 9th, 2017 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new episode every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. 1918. In the first great war of the skies, one in every three of Britain's aviators came from Canada. Amid the fury of unnumbered dogfights, Canadians won deathless fame. Riding the storm of fire and lead, the men of Canada found their wings. Today, Canada's veterans of the air are back in harness again. For on their shoulders falls a new responsibility to train in their skill and daring a new generation of flyers. A generation enrolled in the greatest scheme of air defense ever undertaken, the Commonwealth Air Training Plan. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. This week, our time machine climbs in an early prop plane and flies up to the Great White North, the very heart of Canada, for a trip to Brandon, Manitoba, and a trip back in time. Our destination is the Commonwealth Air Training Plan Museum, a National Historic Site dedicated to the British Commonwealth Air Training Plan, and the memory of the men who fought and died in the sky during the Second World War. It's the only museum of its kind in the world, marking where crews from Australia, New Zealand, England, and Canada trained to take on the Axis powers. Prime Minister Winston Churchill called Canada the Great Dominion and said the British Commonwealth Air Training Plan was its greatest contribution to Allied victory, specifically over Germany and Italy in the European theater. Our wing commander on this journey is Museum President John McNary, whose father and uncle served in the war. John is a man who loves aircraft. Andy loves history, and it made me realize I'd be sitting down with a kindred spirit. You can visit the museum and share some of that great historic glow online at airmuseum.ca, join their Facebook group, or find them on Twitter at C-A-T-P-M underscore Brandon. Okay, now that we've crossed the 49th parallel from North Dakota into Manitoba, let's meet up with John McNary and visit the Commonwealth Air Training Plan Museum. I'm here at the Commonwealth Air Training Plan Museum in Brandon, Manitoba, Canada, with Museum President John McNary. Thank you for welcoming the History Author Show into your museum. You're very welcome. I've had the privilege to tour around here with you, look at some of the planes, look at some of the parts of planes. This was really an amazing find for me, who's always looking for some World War II history anywhere that I go. Let's start by painting a picture for the people listening. When they visit the Commonwealth Air Training Plan Museum, what will they see when they walk in those doors? Well, first of all, as you approach the airport here, this airport was a service flying training school in World War II. We call it SFTS-12. And the hangar we're in is a National Historic Site. It is one of 701 hangars, double-wide, built to house aircraft of the training plan during World War II. And as you approach the grounds, you've probably noticed there's other buildings out there. There's five other buildings in various states of repair, some restored, some waiting for us to work on them. And the intent is that when you leave the public highway and end up driving onto our site, you'd have the sense that you're actually entering a World War II military training establishment. So the hangar itself is a great big wooden structure. There's few of them left of the 701 of them that were mass fabricated during the war. 
the climate helps you out here. I was amazed to see the planes and see the cars and things. No rust. They can last a really long time out here. Despite the cold, the moisture, the lack of moisture rather, helps you in your preservation work. Somewhat. You would think so at first. One of the biggest issues I have is the hangar was heated during the war with coal-fired hot water systems. They had great big furnaces that each one would heat two hangars and trucked coal in here. And of course, during the war, expense wasn't an issue. But now we don't heat the hangar. So whatever the ambient temperature is outside, that's the temperature in the hangar. The aircraft and cars and trucks in there are shielded from the snow and the rain. But in the spring, when it warms up, the condensation issue in there gets to be a hassle. So it's not an easy environment as it first appears, but yes, it's probably better than a really humid environment like near coastal area. Your story begins in 1939 when Canada, Great Britain, New Zealand, and Australia agree on the British Commonwealth Air Training Plan. Why train pilots for World War II here in Manitoba? We just talked about the snow you get when people think of Manitoba. Maybe when they just think of Canada, they think of the cold and the climate. So why pick this spot? Well, it is cold here in the winter. But being that we're in a higher latitude in the summer, you have very long days. Like you can see without light at 5 in the morning and uh, you've got daylight until 9.30, 10 o'clock at night. So in the morning nicer hours of the day or the year, you have lots of flying time. But if you think of the war situation, the Nazis had prepared for a long time for the war and had really high-tech airplanes already for the time. If you look at some of the biplane, like a Gloucester Gladiator or a Hawker Hind or any of those aircraft that the Brits were training with in the 30s, one of the things that war does is it pushes technology. Look at what they started the war with and yeah, just planes. The Nazis had planned this. The rest of us sort of had to react to it. You just have to look at the map and look at the size of Great Britain. If you want to exclude northern Scotland and Ireland, it's not a big country. And uh, where are you going to learn to fly? If You can imagine taking a young fellow up in an aircraft there and flying around and all of a sudden having Messerschmitt show up. It wouldn't be a very pleasant classroom experience. So out yeah. here in the prairies in Canada, we've got lots of wide open spaces. Uh, if you look at where the plan was, it, the uh, heavily populated area around the Toronto, Hamilton, down in that area, southwestern Ontario, mostly farmland, open spaces. A fairly high population density there, and that's why there was a lot of the, the training schools were built there. But out here on the prairies, all kinds of room. And when we look at Canada as itself at the time, we weren't a very big nation. I meant to look up what our population was, but I'm going to guess somewhere around 10 million people at that time, which is pretty small. Like even now, the population of California is greater than Canada's. Yeah, and that's one reason that Canada wanted to do this training here as opposed to supplying a huge land army. Your prime minister at the time didn't embrace the idea at first for this plan, in part because, well, there's your clock, uh, who said we're in a working museum. So <laughs> you'll hear machinery and some things in the background, which I, I like to have the natural sound. But the reason the prime minister opposed it is because of that population. He didn't want Canada to be expected to contribute all of these men to the war effort. They thought that they could contribute something else, some other things that they had, such as this central location and the light and things like that, the proximity to the U.S., which was neutral at the time. I like that that shows that in democracies, there are these differences of opinion, how to prosecute a war, even among allies. So... What brought Mackenzie King around to embracing the idea for the Commonwealth Air Training Plan? And did this idea of having some expense but not having the big manpower, did that work out by the end oh, of the war? For sure it worked out. I think we could back up in, in time and sort of have a quick look at World War I. The colonies, as uh, Britain liked to think of us, even though we've been a dominion since 1867, and uh, Australia, New Zealand, and the other Commonwealth nations were kind of used as suppliers of soldiers to what the British kept thinking as the British Empire, even though the empire hadn't had the sun set on it by that time, really. So when you look at that and think, Mackenzie wasn't willing to let us just be soldiers, let's do more. 
and I kind of I kind of like to say that that it's where we as a nation stood up to our parent nation and said, you know what? Yeah, that needs to be done, but we're going to do it our way and we're going to do it better. And to me, that's one of the most important things as a Canadian that I look at the plan, what we accomplished. And you're talking about America and our proximity. Of course, that little narrow border that you can hardly see between us. The American technology was far above most anyone else at the time. And we're right next door to that. We've got the wide open spaces here without hostile aircraft around. We've got lots of raw material as far as wood and coal and fuel and manpower. So it's the perfect place to do it. It's what, an hour from the border? Yeah, if you look at Canada's population, I would think it would be a fair statement to say that the majority of Canada's population is within 60 miles of the U.S. border. And that was good for getting around this neutrality, too. That's a fun thing. And one reason that I was excited to come here to the Commonwealth Air Training Plan Museum is I remember when I first read about that in high school, I guess it was, that because of U.S. neutrality, limiting the direct support for the war, but still wanting to support the mother country also for us in the UK was to bring these planes and bring some supplies right there to the border because you couldn't fly them over. So tell people about that. What was before Pearl Harbor and the US gets in, what was the relationship there for Canada to be able to tap into that US? Well, you know, we we actively recruited pilots from the States (laughs) and my memory isn't as good as it ought to be, but you could probably look it up. I think it was the Knight Commission. They went around and set up in places like in Chicago and New York and actively recruited young fellows to be pilots. But yes, America wasn't in the war at the beginning. There was, uh, I wouldn't say ambivalence, but there was a thought that maybe it just wasn't the right thing to be doing. Perhaps isolationist ideas, but looking at the whole thing, When they decided to help, there's an interesting little story I'll share with you, and I I don't have the complete details, but one of the aircraft out in the hangar is a Stinson, an HW-75. I think it's a funny-looking little airplane, but it, it flies, and we look after it. Some American groups gathered up a whole mess of Stinsons and flew them into Maine and thought they would take them across the border, get them into Canada, ship them to France to be used as trainers. When the Nazis overran France, that didn't happen. So the aircraft are there already. They ended up being used as uh, depot hacks and radio trainers in the Commonwealth Air Training Plan. Made use. It's kind of interesting. Make use of what we had. The Harvard out in the hangar, which in in America would be an AT-6 or a Texan, we call it a Harvard. That particular aircraft was towed across the border between uh, Montana and Alberta was landed, taxied right up in the border and shut down, and then basically lassoed and pulled across the border. <laughs> they always find a way around the letter of the law. Yeah, it didn't fly in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you have a lot of, not just planes, completed planes, but planes in various stages of completion. And you have one little trainer out there, which is a really fun little thing to look at. It looks almost like a toy that you'd see outside of a Walmart or a Target or something or a supermarket where you just kind of get in there, put a quarter. But it was deadly serious, that training. Oh, for sure. You're thinking of the Link Trainer. Yeah. Talk about that. Describe it for people. The Link Trainer is a little plywood box. It's got stubby little wings on it and a full enclosed cockpit with a hood that closes over it. So when you're inside it, other than the lights on your dashboard and your map reading light, it's dark in there. And it's mounted on a platform so they can move in pitch and roll and yaw, just like a real aircraft can, operated by vacuum servos and an electric motor driving the vacuum pump, and connected to a device called a crab that sat on the examiner's or the instructor's desk on top of a map. So when the trainee pilot was put in the link, he was given a course to fly, and flew it, and he could communicate verbally with the headphones and a, micro- and a microphone with his instructor, and they would fly a mission, just like a modern flight trainer. Although instead of sitting at a computer terminal, you're sitting in this thing and getting some sensory feedback by the thing moving in, in real space, like it's bending and leaning side to side and pitching, and you can actually crash a link. Huh. But you walk away from it every <laughs> <Yeah>. time. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't want to be jammed in there. I looked at some of those planes you have. You have another one there where it's the gunner, right? And you looked at that little tiny area and you said oh, the 
Gunners were small people. Yeah. The seat folds out and they're sitting right on the trap door. So imagine. And as you were saying, when you were giving the tour there through the hangar, you said the if you were trying to take down a bomber, that gunner would be the first one that you'd shoot for. And so oh, absolutely. If I was a, if that was my task as a pilot to uh, attack a bomber formation, you'd go for the gunners first. Once the gunner's out of commission, then you're you're free to go at the rest of it without retaliating fire. So yeah, the gun gunners were it was a tough position. It seems to me though, when I when I talk to the veterans, just about every young lad that signed up, and these were young people when you think about it, just barely out of their teens, when they signed up, everybody wanted to be a pilot. You know, you look at a Spitfire like, oh, I gotta fly that. Everybody wanted to fly. But as they went through, they'd put them in the link trainers, they'd examine them, they'd test them, and you'd be weeded out and maybe become a bomber, a navigator, a gunner, a radio operator, an observer. Couldn't all be pilots. Far from it. Yeah, and that's something that I wanted to ask about because you said the numbers vary. My number that I think I saw over on your website, which by the way is airmuseum.ca. That's correct. Not .com for those of you in the lower 48 and Alaska and Hawaii, the freak states as they call them the (laughs) Simpsons, but it is uh, airmuseum.ca. And I looked on there and I think I navigated through to 130 people who passed through these doors between 1939 and 1945. You said the number sometimes is as high as uh, 150,000, but that's an important thing that not all of them are pilots. There are navigators, bomb aimers, wireless operators, air gunners. There's people who need to get the fuel here. There's a phrase that uh, no one kicks ass without tanker gas in the Iraq war fellow. So I've heard that one. And this is the thing to get those people up there. You need all sorts of people. And I think that today, working with your hands, having that technical mind of how things work, I think maybe people directed into computers. We think of those engineers, but just people that are able to work like in this amazing workshop you have there full of so many tools and things like shop class. We sort of have pushed that to the side. People are afraid of, you know, losing a finger or something like that. But these were young people. You look at the wall you have outside, the memorial wall, you know, the ages there, 19, 20, 21, 22, that were coming in here doing whatever they could to support this fight against this faraway enemy. It wasn't just pilots. Oh, far from it. And uh, we were talking about the, a little earlier about the size of the plan. It was coast to coast. And in, in our Canadian history, I look at things well, as an American neighbor sharing the same continent here, the, the St. Lawrence Seaway. When you look at that structure, the infrastructure to have the St. Lawrence Seaway, or look at the national railways across the country. In Canada here, we have CN and CP Rail that run coast to coast. That was a great big event when in the 1800s when we built that railway across the continent. The money spent on the BCATP in Canada surpasses both of those as far as infrastructure wow. expenditures. The other thing that I think is really interesting is if you think about that last century, World War I finished and you know we had the roaring 20s. I don't think anybody wanted to talk or think about war in that time frame. And then we had the stock market crash and the Great Depression that coincided with the drought. like And the flu. And, well, the, uh, the influenza in 1918, yes. So the, the world was a tough place in the late 30s and mid-30s. You look at something like World War II happening, all of a sudden there's a huge amount of work for anybody who's willing to pick up a hammer or a saw or a wrench and get involved. And we're talking about it, you know, the the airplanes and the cars and trucks and all the, you know, the leftover things from the war that are fascinating here. I think it's also fascinating that look what it did to our nations as it gave everybody employment. I think it's an awful excuse for a war or maybe, yeah, but it did. Most of the airports that we have around here in Canada were at one time Commonwealth Air Training Plan bases. Yeah, mention a few of those. What can modern Canadians have right under their feet that they may not know? What are some of those that are left over that are now airplanes? Oh, well, just pick any airport. They yeah, really pretty much, s- that much? Pretty much anyone. <laughs> you know, Something. The one Mirabelle in uh, Montreal isn't, but Dorval was. The one in Toronto was. Winnipeg International was. Calgary's airport, it was a Commonwealth Air Training Plan base. Of course, they've expanded and they're a lot bigger than they were. For those of us who are computer savvy and want to have a little fun sometimes, if you can find a map of the time period and pick out the airfields 
of the schools where they were, and each of them had satellite fields, you can fly around with Google Earth a couple of thousand feet above the surface and still see the remains of those airports. Wow. They still show up in the fields. Yeah, that's fun. It is fun. It's cool to be able to look back and see the history right there under you looking down because it reminds you of how new air travel is and how new all of our technology is. You were walking me through one of the planes out there and you said, look, this is, you know, there's just a cable. That's it, right? No handle, no nothing that the hand yeah. that, you know, moves around the flaps. That's crazy. Well, it's functional. Yeah. <laughs> it's simple and it works. It's just applied physics. Yeah. It's wood. And I asked you about that because I was fascinated by that because in fact, Theodore Roosevelt's sons, some of them volunteered before the war started, both world wars. They wanted to get in on it. And so that was the thing. You look at the piece of Quentin Roosevelt, his youngest son, the plane that he was flying when he was shot down in the in the Great War. And it's just wood. It's just a piece of wood, you know, fabric over it. And that's not so far behind what you're using here as trainers because, as you said, the Germans and the U.S. were putting all kinds of work into it. These are really still early, what we would consider early planes. Yeah, early. Some and, yeah, some of them. And yet, yet if you look at the, what they were made from, the one out there that, that impresses me a lot is the uh, – Mark V Anson. The Mark V structure is wood, plywood, and Sitka spruce. And it's a smooth, nice looking airplane. And, you know, if you saw it sitting out on the ramp, you wouldn't know it was wood. Look at the de Havilland Mosquito from World War II. When it came out, it was the fastest and most versatile airplane out there, made of wood. You just make that assumption when you look at it, I think, today that. This must be some composite, or it must at the very least be some but it, but steel. But it is a composite. <laughs> yeah. Wood is nature's yeah, composite. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you have to choose the right one and the right pieces, but those are amazing to look at those. And think of what's going on in the world at this time, even though Canada is far removed from it. As I mentioned to you earlier in our conversation, war in all forms tends to push technology. You know, I'm basically a pacifist at heart, but I find the technology fascinating. Yeah. Well, as you said, war is a terrible reason to have full employment, but also a terrible reason to push technology ahead. But that's exactly what it did here, especially in aviation, especially when the force, I mean, the Battle of Britain is raging in the summer of 1940. This has just gotten up and running here. So I wanted you to talk about who meets that challenge of building all this infrastructure, the schools that are required, you know, not just the airfields, which are tough enough, but they need to start cranking out knowledgeable people for all these facets of flight. And you showed me in your museum a portrait of, or is it a painting? It's, it's a painting. Okay, a painting. Yeah, yeah. a stern-looking guy. Looks like he could get things done and tough-looking yes. general you'd, you'd want to have around. Probably had a cool nickname, but he was he was the man. So tell us about him. Well, that's Airbase Marshall. Collard. And Collard uh, was a businessman in Winnipeg when the war broke out and was asked or conscripted, I don't know which way you'd say, he was asked to uh, take on the role of overseeing the development of all this infrastructure from his engineering and building background of building large buildings. And he also worked with one of the prominent Canadian politicians at the time, um, C.D. Howe, who was often called the minister of everything. C.D. <laughs> Howe was uh, building large concrete grain elevators at the ports before the war broke out. They were basically given unlimited latitude to go and get this job done. Yeah, they kind of throw mon money and uh, men at them, tell us what you need kind of thing. I'm sure Mackenzie King's government and everybody, we're always concerned about the bottom line. But if you want to save democracy, which is what they're attempting to do, the cost wasn't the first priority. Yeah, it does end up costing more. Well, I guess wars always do. It's another they way do. things go, right? The thing that fascinates me in, about that, the construction of all of this, is I often hear that these buildings like this hangar that we're in and our other buildings out on this site are temporary. As a fellow that works on them, we go out and rebuild these buildings. There's nothing shoddy about how they were put together. If anything was skimped on, it was the foundations. The smaller buildings out there, the H huts and the canteen building, et cetera, were just put on concrete blocks with the joist sitting on the blocks on the ground. They didn't build proper foundations for them. That wasn't an issue. They were expected to last four or five years, and, yeah. and the war would be won, and we wouldn't need them. Yeah, they needed to get moving, too. I mean, that was exactly. the thing. Get, get those men over there to so, support the RAF. Picture a small town anywhere across the country that was chosen as a site for a training school. 
that all of a sudden you have a huge amount of work going on, a railway spur line being built in to bring in the raw materials. Carpenters, road building, sewage, you know, they they put enough sewage lines in that if you connected them all end to end, they could span the continent. <laughs> you know, and we don't think about that. What went underneath these yeah. airports, the runways, the hydroelectric systems, all of that. It's amazing. We're speaking with John McNary, president of the Commonwealth Air Training Plan Museum in Brandon, Manitoba, Canada. As you heard us say, this is about an hour north of the North Dakota border of the U.S. You can visit the museum online at airmuseum.ca, join their Facebook group, or find them on Twitter at C-A-T-P-M underscore Brandon. Almost half of the total aircrew personnel who served in the British and Commonwealth flying operations during World War II graduated from this plan. That's a huge contribution, and it's a legacy worthy of your preservation efforts. So for people listening in the English-speaking world, or even some of those in the occupied nations whose free forces trained here, we don't want to forget about them being able to come all the way over here and have a peaceful place to train and hopefully liberate their home countries. What can people do to ensure that this history is preserved for the future? Well, I think what what we are attempting to do right now is uh, we've recorded oral histories with the veterans that we were able to convince to come up and speak with us. So those are on file. As yet, we haven't done a huge amount with them, but it was really a pleasure for me, and still is, I know a few are with us yet, to talk to veterans who experienced this first person. Unfortunately, history is never told first person unless we're lucky enough to know someone. So acquiring that information and knowledge and having it accessible for the future, we always hear that statement that if we don't study history, we're doomed to repeat it. It seems so true. Yeah, especially that's why there's a second world war, right? If we'd learned it right and done it right the first one, after all that horror, maybe we wouldn't have had to have a second one. One of my uh, close friends, I sometimes call him my surrogate dad, he and I have uh, worked here at the museum for quite a while. He's uh, about 98 now, so I'm, he's not doing much work here anymore. But he told me one time when we were on a little road trip with our 1940 Chevy staff car to go to the unveiling of a cenotaph at a neighboring community. They wanted our presence there, so we thought it would be fun to go in the staff car. <laughs> and that's a long trip because it only goes 35, 40 miles an hour. And Archie told me, you know, they never won World War I. They agreed to stop fighting. And it took them 25 years or so to grow a new crop of soldiers. Yeah. Sad way to look at it. It's an armistice. I mean, it wasn't a surrender. It was one of the things with our civil war in the U.S. U.S. Grant, they started saying it stood for unconditional surrender. And the Korean War, too. I look at that sometimes and I say the U.S. has had, or the United Nations at the time, has had soldiers stationed there for a third of the U.S., for a third of the United States' existence. It's been since 1951. There's no official peace. Everyone just agreed to stop fighting and sit there. I mean, think of the expense. Think of the hours and the times lost and all the things as President Eisenhower, well, I guess in this room, I can see a picture of him there. General Eisenhower said in his farewell address, and he said every, he warned about the military industrial complex, and he talks about every bomber built, every gun, every gun made, every bullet that's made is in the bottom line of theft from those who hunger and are not fed. And you think about that, and as terrible as war is, a complete end to it, you know, that's when you get a winner and a loser, and that's when you get a lasting peace. And now we can put our arms around German soldiers and Japanese and Italian. And, and have an alliance. And and if that had happened after the Great War, instead of this punitive peace that I always blame mostly on our president, Woodrow Wilson at the time, going there and deciding, well, the bankers all wanted to shake the money out of Germany, you know, that, that just laid the groundwork, as you said, for a worse war 25 well, years later. Exactly. The uh, repatriation that uh, Germany had to pay to France and the other nations they overran in the First World War and the stipulations of that armistice on Germany was very, very hard. And you look at that and historically and think about it and, and realize that one of the things that happens is as things get better and things smooth out, the first person knowledge of the terror of war sort of fades away and there becomes sort of an apathy where people don't really want to think about it or don't care or don't want to get involved with it. And then things are ripe for a new political mindset to come in and take over. 
that's a little bit scary. You, you can watch and you can see that going on in many nations around the world right now. Well, for the Germans, it was certainly something they remembered. And in our allied nations, we thought, well, we really did take advantage of them. In the U.S., one of the reasons for our neutrality and even not declaring war on Germany and after Pearl Harbor, the, Hitler had to bring us in by declaring war on us, right? And Churchill kept trying to get us to commit to it. And meanwhile, FDR is asking him, you're going to send the fleet over to Canada if you get defeated, right? And Churchill's saying, I can't promise what another government will do. I mean, I'll die fighting. You know, he he actually had a chair, much like the old ones were sitting in here that, you know, over the period with a metal plate of armor in the back so he could shoot his way out of his bedroom, you know? So he said, I'll fight till the last, (laughs) but I can't guarantee that another government might not give them the fleet. And so, you know, how about supporting us now for the fight? And that was really something that kept us out of the war because we looked back and we said a lot of the things we heard about the Germans doing in the Great War were propaganda. The Mm -hmm. transatlantic cables from Germany ran through Great Britain. So imagine their luck. They were so thrilled they could put all kinds of stuff in there and talk about atrocities that turned out not to have happened. So then when you wonder why with an eye to history, as you said, about being doomed to repeat it, This is why people hear about the camps and about the pogroms and about the mass murder of the Jewish people that are there, and they don't necessarily believe it, or they look at it with a jaundiced eye. They say, you know, these Europeans kind of fooled us into going over there last time, and maybe we'll we'll just stay out of this one because of that. So that's a little bit far afield from what's happening here, but it gives you a flavor for the feeling when the mother country that you mentioned comes to Canada and says, hey, give us some men. And they say, well, not so fast. We're not just going to plug holes on the Somme right. again this time. We'll we'll do something else. Do this something is just, better. Yeah. One of the things where we're on that topic is in any nation, you live in that nation. And I think I'm fortunate to have been born here in Canada. And I like being a Canadian. But I'm sure that if I was born in the, in the States, I'd feel the same way. We all like where, we're, where we are, I think, in the majority of the time. And I'm very careful when we're I'm touring people around here to speak of Germany and Nazis and not just use Germans, because there were a lot of German folks who were caught up in it, who didn't really want to be. It was 12 years of their history, which is something. When you think, how do people not know? And they say, well, this was Germany. Think of what Germany was like then. It was a center of culture. People thought Beethoven and Mozart, and they thought all these people who'd come there to make it, and Austrian Hitler being from there. So you think of all all that joint history in that empire. And so that's why today, unfortunately, with movies constantly reinforcing that, German tourists ask me for directions in the city, and you think, gosh, that's rough to have that legacy. You might have been one of the people fighting it. I interviewed a woman, Hildegard Mahoney, and her family was so American, and they ended up being stuck in Japan for the length of the war. The book is Journey Interrupted. People can find the interview in the archives. She certainly wasn't for Hitler. In fact, her father was very much pressured by the German embassy there in Japan to join the Nazi party, and he said no, he wasn't going to, which got them all, you know, they spent all the years of the war with this constant watching them, and as children, you you fear every time they're going to say or do or the wrong thing, right? They might... You know, find out he had a radio, for instance. So Mm -hmm. those were very much victims of the Nazi takeover. So that's an important distinction, especially now, as I said, when we were fighting side by side or or at least prepared to fight side by side with the former Axis powers and NATO and our alliance with Japan. I want people to know you talked about bringing people around the museum. So that's a perfect time to mention that if you visit airmuseum.ca, you see that this is a very active place. It's got a life to it. I, even walking through it here, just with you, you can see there's signs, there's places for people to visit, there's various posters and things so people can remember the legacy of this place and the men and women who served here. So talk about some of the things that you do throughout the year so that people can come here and experience it. Well, there's always work to do here. And, and as you say, it's an active place. It's not as active as it was 20 years ago or so when I first started coming here. When I first came, this hangar, as a World War II structure, was starting to suffer signs of decay. And the city had actually was thinking about condemning it and had told the museum board at the time that they needed to find a different home. Myself and a few of the baby boomer generation said, hey, wait a minute, this building itself is an artifact and it can be saved if there's a will to do it. And back then we, I'd come to the museum on a Saturday morning and there would probably be 20 people working here. Some of them my age, but the majority of them veterans. 
of course, those guys aren't with us, not by choice, but by time. And it's a little bit hard right now getting the uh, younger people involved. I think the fact that we're an active flying museum helps. We have five aircraft that are capable of flight, four of which we flew regularly last summer. And we take them to other aviation-related events around the country within an easy flying distance. That helps. I, I think of the airplanes as museum ambassadors as well as artifacts. People look at it and go, well, where's that from? Well, just on top of the hill at the airport. What, yeah. you have a museum here? <laughs> you know, It's a struggle. But it is happening. It does work. I think today with this media that we're using now, like this radio interview and having it accessible on the internet, people find out to get linked to here. And, and the thing I find fascinating is that people come from all over the world. We have visitors come here from New Zealand, which is about as far away from here as you can get. <laughs> Because there's a common connection. The Royal New Zealand Air Force people trained here as well. You can find the airport too, right next door. You can fly there, people, right? People can fly oh, yeah, You can fly here. Uh, currently, uh, WestJet, which is one of our uh, Canadian airlines, flies in and out of here twice daily. Yeah, you can you can fly here. It's a it's an active little airport for general aviation. And you were so right, too, when you look up and see one of those World War II planes. I know when we have Fleet Week in New York City, that's exciting. You'll see some planes in common with it, or sometimes they'll fly them out of West Point up the Hudson and come down. And that's just something for anybody when you look up like that. We have planes over our heads all the time right now. They've lost that fascination. You know, you think of... Kind of. For some people, you know, anyway. But those older planes are... When you hear a, a piston engine driving a propeller pulling an airplane through the sky... It sounds way more beautiful than a jet to me. <laughs> yeah, the the museum here, when you come here, I think you can get a sense, the ambiance of the place. One of the veterans asked me what ambiance meant, and I explained it to him, and he said, oh, you mean dust and pigeon crap. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, you, you get the feeling, You could, there's, a, there's a feeling of history when you're in the building. It's, it's here. You're definitely, you definitely feel it. You're working one side, for instance, it's, it was for the dance hall, right? And you talked about getting the neon on it at some point. You know, things like that that you can look at and see and feel like they would have felt back then. You think of those guys that were walking in there for a dance that they were going to be flying the next day and maybe losing their life. I mean, this wasn't all fun. That was, no, that was risky, it was, it right? It was serious business. When you think about the generation that experienced this, these young folks we were talking about, and you mentioned the memorial wall outside earlier. It's 54 four-foot by five-foot black granite panels arranged in the shape of the airfoil of a wing. And on that wall, there's about 19,000 names of people who gave up their life in World War II. They, they lost their life in this conflict, some of them in overseas in the, in the battles, but others in training accidents. 850, is that about what it is, or over 850 yeah, people in, died during training? In training, yes. So, that you know, when I, when I look at that, in, I mentioned earlier how small a nation Canada was at the time. I look at that, 18,039 of those names on the wall are, are people who are wearing the RCF uniform at the time. And so who were those people? I would guess that the average age, if you walked along the wall and mentally averaged it, probably about 22, 24 years old. And when we think of ourselves at that age, you know, you had ambitions of having a family or maybe you already had started one. You had plans of enjoying life and carrying on. I don't think any of them expected they were going to be gone that soon. So it's kind of a tough reminder to me of the sacrifice, what it was. And you look at those fellows, and I, I kind of imagine my own father on a little half-section farm out in the prairies who had a small four-cylinder Fordson gas tractor. A lot of times uh, folks were still farming with horses around here at that time. So they sign up and uh, may be lucky enough to become a pilot and uh, maybe gone into the fighter role with single engine or perhaps uh, bomber command. With So here's a kid that was riding a bicycle to school maybe, maybe riding a horse to school. His dad might have had something like a Model A Ford for a motorized vehicle. And here he is 18 months later as a skipper, pilot in command of a four-engine Lancaster bomber. What a lot of work, like, yeah. just to get that far. Like, I've had the privilege of sitting in the left seat of a B-17 in flight. I wouldn't say I flew it. I steered it around a little bit. But, yeah. <laughs> but you sit in that thing and you think, wow, 
what a piece of machinery, you know, and, and imagine what those young lads had to learn to get to that point. And fast, under and pressure. And fast, under pressure. Like it, was, it wasn't a party. Yeah. Although you mentioned the dance sign. Well, when they had a chance to party, they did. That yeah. dancing sign came from the dance hall downtown in the city. In November 2016, you had a 97-year-old World War II tail gunner. His name is Doug Christie. He came here to the Commonwealth Air Training Plan Museum. That's some advanced age, 97. You think about the changes he has seen. As you mentioned, you talked about going to school maybe in a horse, or if you were lucky, you'd have a, a very early model car. What do they think when they come here? What, what does it give you as somebody who's dedicated so much of your time and is so enthusiastic about this? So what do you feel? Those guys come here, you have the honor of being around them. I, I imagine you feel a sense of inspiration then when they go back home or when they pass on to really redouble your efforts. What's it like having them here? What do they say? Oh, it's pretty special. And, and Doug's case, he wrote a book about his experiences as a tail gunner. Yes, I have Doug's little book in my hand here. It's called Some Experience. And I guess that was some experience. <laughs> I've been messing around with these museums and of this type. And one in Alberta, Nanton, Alberta, has the Bomber Command Museum. And they have uh, a running Lancaster bomber there. They also have pieces of Lancaster bombers that were used in movie props, etc. And one of them has an operational tail gunner's position. And when Doug was here, after things quieted down, I went over and sat beside him and we talked for a little bit. And I mentioned to him, I said, in my mind, he's one of the lucky ones. He survived the war. He said, well, let me tell you about my best trip. And this little story's not in the book, but I think it sort of gives you an idea of what it was like. If you can imagine leaving the central part of Britain where the bomber bases were and they had like 1,000 bomber raids. Like you imagine 1,000 airplanes at once heading to an area like they called the Ruhr Valley, the industrial area of Germany. They called it Happy Valley. And it wasn't a happy place to be. There was fighters and flak. And the 8th Air Force did their work in the daytime with the flying forts. These guys went over at night with uh, Wellingtons and Halifaxes and Lancasters. And so you get all these... Fairly large piston engine, multi-engine aircraft formating together to form the bomber stream over the south of England and then heading east across the North Sea to Germany. As they're heading out over the North Sea, behind them the sun would be setting. And Doug said, you know, I was sitting in the tail watching Dover fade away and turning from white cliffs to orange to red to disappearing in then the distance as they heading for Germany and thinking about what's going to happen next. And he said, uh, next thing I know, I woke up and I was watching Dover appear. And I said, what do you mean you woke up? And he said, well, my oxygen wasn't connected. And as we passed oh, 12,000 feet, he passed out. And when he got above, uh, 12,005 is legal without oxygen. If you're above that, you need oxygen. And he he didn't remember that whole trip. And he says, that's the way to do a trip. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow, they didn't. Uh, they didn't need him, I guess. Uh, well, fortunately, was, fortunately, there wasn't a night fighter out to pick yeah, at him. Wow. And uh, <laughs> I'll share another little story. One of the veterans told me Al McKay was a gunner on a uh, Wellington. Wellington's kind of an interesting airplane, twin-engine, geodesic structure, affectionately called a wimpy. Anyway, they had been doing a job which they they called gardening. And gardening's not out pulling weeds. Gardening's flying low over the enemy's harbor and sowing the, the harbor with sea mines. They'd throw them out and they'd impede the shipping. So on the way back, as they approached, England was covered in fog. The North Sea was clear, but as they approached, Britain is covered in fog. So they flew to their alternate airport. It was also fogged in. Well, now they're low on fuel. They haven't been shot at or anything. The airplane's running fine but they're running out of fuel. They can't make it to the next base. And their skipper said, we're over land, boys, everybody out. I'm going to put this thing on autopilot and ditch it in the channel. Al told me the other gunner said, well, I'm not jumping out. There's nothing wrong with this airplane. Well, he doesn't really have a choice. Al was about six feet tall, and I can imagine him in his mid-20s. He would be a strong young fella. The gunners didn't wear their parachutes. They were clipped to the inside of the fuselage. And they'd clip them to their harness that they were wearing and then get out, which if you think about that operation in an emergency, 
Well, a lot of them didn't make it. But anyway, Al clipped the parachute on his gunnery partner, grabbed a hold of the D-ring, which inflates the chute when you yank it and releases the chute, held on to him, put his back to the door, put his foot in his middle of the chest, and shoved him out while he held on to the D-ring. <laughs> so the guy had no choice. He was out, and his chute opened, and he survived. And so did Al, of course, because <laughs> he told me the story. Al told me till the day that the, that fellow died, much later, well post-war, he got a Christmas card from him every year, but he never spoke to Al again. <laughs> <laughs> they were humans just like the rest of us. <laughs> By 1945, when the war does end, the Royal Canadian Air Force has grown into the world's fourth largest. President Franklin D. Roosevelt called Canada the aerodrome of democracy because of the efforts made in places like this as part of the Commonwealth Air Training Plan Museum. What can people look forward to here when they come? You talked about an event here that you're going to be part of, speaking of the Great War, in this coming summer of 2017. What things like that? Do you get who do you get here that comes and how can people help spread that word about this really living history? These planes are incredible to be able to see up close, especially in various stages of repair. Well, it is fascinating in that history does come alive here occasionally. Sometimes I walk out in the hangar and I'm the only soul here, and it's a little bit eerie. You know, you wander around and you can feel the presence of the past right with you. It sounds contradictory, but it's a unique feeling, I think. But when we, we do have the ability to, and, and try to as much as we can afford to, operate the aircraft, it doesn't sound like a lot, but last year we managed to put over 30 hours flying time on the Harvard. So I think there's probably about 10 hours working time for every hour flying time. <laughs> so it gets out there in the public and people get to see it. The Vimy flight, I think, is what you're referring to. There's that Vimy Memorial in France. I like to think that when the Canadians in World War I managed to take Vimy, you often hear that's when we sort of became a nation militarily, and I kind of think that's true. The Vimy flight fellows are going to uh, take replicas. I think they have six replica World War I fighters, Newports, and fly around Vimy to celebrate the 100 years since that happened. Tell people a little of the background there that might not be familiar with it. Well, Vimy Ridge was a, a, a ridge in France that was held by the Germans in World War I and had been basically impenetrable. Nobody seemed to be able to route the Germans out of there. The Canadians were given the task, and they practiced and figured out a way to do it and sort of changed the manner in which an attack was done did a creeping barrage. They did underground tunneling to get there. They had uh, practiced and practiced and practiced with models and uh, terrain set up that was similar. So when the actual morning of the event happened, they were able to keep their timing and do the whole thing, and they actually won the ridge. If you go and look it up, it was quite a quite a thing. And they're going to be flying as part of that. That's going to be so. They're going to fly World War One replicas. And you'll be able to see them here and a, a bunch of places right across. Well, Canada. they they intend to fly across Canada after they're due in France. So uh, we're right in about the middle of the of the continent, just across the line in North Dakota. There's a cairn that says it's a geographical middle of. North America. So we're 60 miles from the center of North America. So as these guys come across, we're organizing a, uh, a flying experience here where we're going to fly our World War II aircraft in conjunction with them flying their World War I aircraft. Should be kind of a unique experience. Well, I hope if people have the opportunity, they will go check out your website. Again, it's airmuseum.ca. Put these kind of things on your calendar to do. If you look, history is all around us. This was something where I happened to be in the area and I said, let me check this out because I'd seen this museum before and thought I'd never have an opportunity to be here. And it was much more than I expected. Some museums are just, oh, maybe a few pictures and a couple of things and usually a very enthusiastic curator. But 
this is really a living museum. You can hear you guys hammering as I look across here at John. He's got some sawdust or paint flecks on him there. He's working. He's a working person with his hands. I know I often say that we're all history authors. We're all writing pieces of history. It's not always with a pen or a word processor or a computer. It can be with something like a hammer or a wrench or here wood or the fabric they're putting over the wings of these planes. Just an amazing place to visit. I hope that that's come across to people. John McNary, president of the Commonwealth Air Training Plan Museum. Thanks so much for bringing me in here today. I've enjoyed your story so much. I want to thank you. I want to thank you on behalf of all the veterans, if I could be that presumptuous, that are here with us and that have gone to join their comrades from the war. You're keeping their memory alive and how important this work here was, not just for Canada, but for the whole free world. Well, I think that's the important thing. We mentioned it earlier. We need to understand our past so that we can learn from it and have a better future. Well, thank you for helping me do that, reconnect with it. This was really, it's a great and unique experience. And again, you can make the trip if you're around, if you're going somewhere like Mount Rushmore in the U.S., you know, or you're in Minnesota for something, you can get here and it'll be well worth the trip. And, you know, when you look at that wall outside or maybe when you look at your family tree, you might have somebody that you don't even know passed through or that never told you the story, a grandfather. Much of the work here was secret. So thank you again for joining me. And I hope that people will, Flood your website, like you on Twitter, join that Facebook group, share their expertise. Well, thank you very much, Dean. You're more than welcome to show up here. And if you ask our curator, Stephen, if you need to arrange a tour with anyone or you want a special first-person tour and we happen to be around, just ask. We'd be more than delighted to do that with you. I can swear to that because you were definitely very friendly and welcoming to me. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Dean. Canada renews her great flying tradition and her pledge in the service of the Commonwealth. So youth takes to the clouds and spreads its wings above the vast land of Canada. Wings above the rivers of the east, above the Restigouche, the Nashwak, the Miramichi, and the thousand islands of the St. Lawrence. Westward above the Mattawa, the Nipigon, and the broad Saskatchewan curving through the horizons of the prairie. Wings in a rushing world of wind and speed where the battle for individual right is fought by individual skill. Wings far across the ocean, above the mountains of New Zealand. New Zealand, Aotearoa. Wings above Sydney Bay, where the white surf of the Pacific rolls in upon Australia's coast, riding the skies of the free dominion. We salute you, for never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. Again, this week's field trip flew us up to the Commonwealth Air Training Plan Museum in Brandon, Manitoba, Canada. No book to plug this week, but we hope if you buy anything from Amazon, you still consider clicking through the Amazon banner on our homepage for your next purchase of any kind. You go to historyauthor.com, we take it Amazon, and say you're buying some Gore-Tex gloves for that cold Manitoba winter. Well, we get a few pennies from every dollar or loony you spend, and it doesn't cost you anything extra in your shopping cart. And if you enjoyed the interview, you could support the show by following us on Twitter at History Dean, tossing us a like at facebook.com slash historyauthor, or leaving us a nice review on iTunes. And we hope that you'll want to spread the word about the Commonwealth Air Training Plan Museum by visiting them online at airmuseum.ca, joining their Facebook group, or following them on Twitter at C-A-T-P-M underscore Brandon. That's it for this Great White North installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for next Monday's all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. Well, until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today. And have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.